Did you all enjoy Dr. Hamilton's teaching? Yeah, what a gift uh, to the church he is. What I love about New Covenant theology or biblical theology or typology or whatever you want to call this thing we do is uh, for many reasons. You see the, the unity of the plan of God. You see the centrality of Christ. But you come away thinking this is the word of God with one author. 40, 40 different authors, but one author, right? You see the unity, and it's just beautiful to see as Dr. Hamilton uh, diligently searches for illusions and parallels and just weaves it all together for us. Um, he's a gift to the church. Dr. Hamilton's on staff full-time, you know, at Southern Seminary, but he calls himself a bivocational pastor because he's also a pastor, which is pretty funny because uh, that's where his heart's at. His heart's to preach, his heart's for the people. And I want to just encourage you a little bit about... Uh, what I most like about Dr. Hamilton. I was in Houston for two years before uh, moving to Fort Worth, where we're at now. And before Dr. Hamilton came to uh, Southern, he was on faculty at Southwestern in the Houston campus. Southwestern has their main campus in Fort Worth, but they also have a satellite in Houston. That's where he started his teaching career. And so as I'm in Houston, I'm trying to network with like-minded pastors, and there's just not many uh, but as we would, as I would try to network with local pastors, we would get together on occasion in various capacities, and I saw Dr. Hamilton's fingerprints everywhere, uh, not only teaching, but making disciples and especially taking pastors under his wings and helping them understand not only biblical theology, but also biblical polity and, uh, and all, obviously the doctrines of grace. So I, that was new to me and encouraging uh, as I was in Houston just to meet so many people who had been influenced by his ministry. So pray for him, uh, read his stuff. And also, before we get started, I've got some homework for you. Um, you know, we were missing John uh, today, this, this week. Yesterday, my session and, and Gary's were to fill in for John's that weren't here. And uh, recently, I just felt, uh, felt led to write him a letter just to encourage him in some things. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. What I would like, most of you all have been uh, helped by John Reesinger in, in one way or another. If you haven't or you haven't yet, then just disregard my homework. You're, you're free. But if you have, I think it would be really encouraging uh, if you would write John a, a handwritten letter, as vintage as that is today, and encourage him, thank him for a specific way that he's helped you in your walk with Christ or in your reading of the scriptures. I just think encouragement always is, is a helpful thing. We as Christians don't encourage enough, but specific encouragement is helpful as well. So the, one of the things I mentioned to John was uh, his, his book that I mentioned yesterday, Abraham's Four Seeds. And I just remember where I was reading that book. I was in Hastings in San Angelo, wet behind the ears, just making connections I'd never had before. So if there's some paragraph, some book, some sermon that John has been helpful to you, let me encourage you to write him a letter, thank him for his ministry, and, and tell him how specifically he's helped you and send it off. I don't have his uh, mailing address here, but uh, that's easy to get. I've got it in my phone or Jacob's got it, but uh, please do that. I think it would mean a lot to him uh, to receive some encouragement since he can't be here with us. Okay, let's pray. Pray for John as well. Father, we are grateful for uh, teachers of the church, Dr. Hamilton and and so many of us have been influenced by John Reesinger. We just want to thank you for his life, and we pray for him even now, as yesterday, that you would encourage him even now, uh, as who knows what he's doing, perhaps he's watching this, but that he would just feel uh, the, the depth of the reality and the glory of being a son of God, your child. Encourage him in that, help him to finish well, continue to use him as, uh, as he finishes his days. Thank you, Lord. And we ask for your enlightenment as we open your word and think about history and uh, help us to, to reflect and think more biblically about the nature of your body. 
We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Okay, so these two hours are going to be on uh, missional ecclesiology. And you may be asking, what? Well, hopefully we'll make that clear. But before making a case uh, for missional ecclesiology, I want to make a caveat. Depending on the context and where you're at, uh, you may or may not need to hear a fresh dose of this sort of teaching. Some contexts, mostly where I've run, Southern Baptist circles, uh, the Great Commission and, and mission, not so much missional thinking, but it's, it is central. Uh, and, and I think there's even an overemphasis in, in my circles on the Great Commission as if that's all there is to the Christian life. I mean, the last sermon I listened to uh, was on John 1, 1 to 14. Most of you are familiar with the prologue of John, and all the application was on the need to fulfill the Great Commission. <laughs> and that's just not what John's talking about. I mean, there are certainly connections. Uh, but So mission is not central to ecclesiology. It's not the only thing we need to be talking about in the church, but it is vital. So some circles have this really well, maybe even too much, but other circles, and probably more in our, our circles, our tradition, need to hear more about mission and missional ecclesiology. Uh, as John Stott says, there's always a tendency to withdraw into a kind of closed evangelical monastic community. And so some circles tend to get very inward focused and have the holy huddle and need to say, hey, you're not here for yourself alone. Uh, God has grander purposes. So I just want to make that caveat. I'm going to be talking about the vitality and maybe even the centrality and the nature of a missional church, but it's not the only thing. There's so many other things we could talk about. Brother Gary talked about some of them. We could talk about worship. We could talk about doctrine, preaching, nurture the one another's love. We could talk about a whole lot of things, but now I want to make a case for a missional ecclesiology. So what is missional anyway? It can seem there are as many definitions as there are definers, and it doesn't help that in the last 15 years there's been a dozen books with the title, with missional in the title. The term has been a buzzword for many within the emerging church, and now many will just dismiss the term outright, guilt by association with the guilty. But genetic fallacies aside, I think the charitable thing and the wiser thing to do is ask, can we learn anything from these emerging prophets? Among other things, the emerging church movement is protesting the church's blind captivity to enlightenment rationalism, a narrow view of salvation for requiring belief before belonging, for uncontextualized worship, for ineffective preaching, for weak ecclesiology, and for tribalism. Mark Driscoll, controversial yet never boring pastor in Seattle of uh, Mars Hill, defines the emerging church as, quote, a growing, loosely connected movement of primarily young pastors who are glad to see the end of modernity and are seeking to function as missionaries who bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to emerging and postmodern cultures. It's this notion of seeking to function as missionaries that I want to focus in on in these talks. So missional can simply be used as an adjective denoting something related to or characterized by mission. Missiologist Eddie Gibbs has a helpful definition. He says, the term missional, which we're using in relation to churches in North America, that's an important point, churches in North America and other parts of the Western world, draws attention to the essential nature and vocation of the church as God's called and sent people. It sees the church primarily as the instrument of God's mission. Following Leslie Newbigin, we'll say more about Newbigin 
in a little while. Following him and others, a church that is missional understands that God's mission calls and sends the church of Jesus Christ to be a missionary church in its own society and in the cultures in which it finds itself. So when I say mission, probably your mind automatically goes to over there. But I'm talking about here. Talking about America, North America. And the point in describing the missional church, not to describe an activity of the church, but to describe the essence of the church. So we need a biblically, a biblically understood a self-understanding, a biblically informed self-understanding before we get busy with all sorts of potentially wrong-headed activity. So identity, this is always the case, isn't it? Theological identity precedes activity. George Hunsberger correctly suggests that there's a lack of theological depth regarding how churches think about their identity and how they relate to their cultural context. I, for one, think that these emerging prophets are on to something. Plenty of negative things we could say, but I want to see what we can learn from them. I agree with many who think the current church in North America needs a fresh dose of ecclesiology. Mission, local and beyond, should be seen as vitally important to any biblically-driven ecclesiology. As Swiss theologian Emil Bruner famously put it, the church exists by mission just as a fire exists by burning. Where there is no mission, there is no church. So a missional church sees the entire congregation as a body sent to the world and existing not only for itself, but to bring the gospel of Jesus to the lost world. So I do think the term missional is a helpful and it's distinct and helpful. It's distinct from missionary, and I think it's proving its worth today as churches better understand their place and their role in redemptive history. But if you get hung up on the term missional, which many have in our circles, that's fine. Come up with your own. Uh, because of that, I was going to go with missiological ecclesiology, but it's just a little too cumbersome. I like missional and uh, just mean that the church is sent. The church is sent wherever it is. That's what I mean by missional. Now, before we get into uh, the Bible's teaching, I, wanna, I want us to think a little bit about secular history and kind of how, we, how we've landed where we are. As we know, the New Testament makes clear Christianity starts very small. Many in the Roman Empire thought it was just a sect within Judaism. It wasn't even a new religion. It was just a sect of Judaism. The church remained relatively obscure. It was marginalized, sporadically persecuted but it experienced a dramatic shift in the fourth century. It went from being a fringe movement to the central religion of the Roman Empire. The persecuted became the persecutors. So how did such a dramatic shift occur? Well, the story goes that one Gaius Flavius Valerius Aurelius Constantinus, better known as Constantine, saw a vision in the sky before an important battle. And depending on which, which version of the story you've heard, it was either a vision of the cross or it was a vision of a Cairo in the sky. And it was circled by a rainbow like stars forming the message, with this conquer, or with this you shall conquer. Later that night, the risen Christ made a personal visit to Constantine, told him to make a battle standard of what he had seen on the, uh, on the shield, so a, a labrum. So it was more than most likely Kairos that were placed now on the shields of Constantine's army. It's worth noting, though, that earlier in his life, Constantine had also received a visit from Apollo, son of Zeus, that helped him overcome Maximian and, and other victories. But on this day, on October 28, 312 A.D., 
Constantine defeated Maxentinius to win the West at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Constantine's admirer and a hagiographer, Eusebius, saw this battle as the decisive victory of the Christian faith. But in actual fact, I think it's highly unlikely that Constantine was genuinely converted. Rather, he was probably an extremely shrewd political ruler who knew he could unite the empire in the name of religion. Three years after this vision of Christ in 315, the Ark of Constantine was erected and was full of pagan imagery. Sol Invictus, that is the unconquered sun god, continued to appear on Roman coins until 325. In fact, I was reading, uh, many of you may be familiar with Huso Gonzalez's church history, really, really a popular work on church history, good work. And in it, he says that probably Constantine uh, thought that, that the God and Father of Jesus Christ was compatible with the unconquered sun god. That's, uh, you know, that's begging the question or special pleading to say the least. Constantine never placed himself under the direction of Christian leaders. He determined his own religion, religious practices. He repeatedly participated in pagan rites long after his conversion. He continued to serve other gods, and he functioned as the high priest of paganism his whole life. Now, perhaps I've been in too influenced by the Anabaptists. Doesn't seem to me, though, that you can do that sort of thing and be a Christian. Seems to me that worshiping false gods and being the high priest of paganism just conflicts a little bit with Christianity, but I'll leave you to judge that. He wasn't baptized his whole life until on his deathbed, seemingly just to make sure he had all his bases covered. One author notes that Constantine came to the throne of the Roman Empire and granted Christians complete freedom of worship and even favored Christianity. In virtually an instant, Christianity moved from being a marginalized, subversive, and persecuted movement secretly gathering in houses and catacombs to being the favored religion in the empire. Everything changed. In AD 380, Theodosius made the official religion of the Roman Empire Christianity. In the 6th century, Emperor Justinian I made baptism into the triune name compulsory. You had to do it. Talk about a church growth strategy. Just imagine, though, how drastically things changed here. Now to be a member of society was to be a member of the church. To say that ecclesiological identity was impacted would be a massive overstatement, understatement. The salt became tasteless and the light was dimmed. Many consider this period to be the, quote, fall of the church, end quote. This new favored civil status of Christianity led to what many have called Christendom, Christ's kingdom, the idea of a state church that would eventually lead to the Holy Roman Empire. Christendom is that period in history when the church assumed influence by its connection to secular power. Stuart Murray writes in the book The Naked Anabaptist that Christendom is characterized by the following points. It was a geographical region in which almost everyone was at least nominally, that is in name only, Christian. Christendom was a historical era resulting from the 4th century conversion of Constantine and lasting into the tw late 20th century. Christendom was a civilization decisively shaped by the history, by the story, language, symbols, and rhythms of Christianity. Christendom was a political arrangement in which church and state provided mutual, if often uneasy, support and legitimation. And Christendom was an ideology, a mindset, a way of thinking about God's activity in the world. 
In many ways, the West has operated in this Christendom model up until, as Stuart Murray indicates, the late 20th century. In many ways, we're just getting over Christendom. There's many places in North America that are still fully Christendom. I mean, I'm in Texas, uh, which is going to be one of the last places to see. We still have flowing with milk and honey down there. But it's, it's whatever its undoubted benefits, and there are many that we could talk about, whatever its undoubted benefits, it seems to me, and it seems to many others, that when the church came from the margins to the center, it left mission at the margins. So thinking in terms of history still, let's, let's zoom past the Middle Ages because no one knows anything about the Middle Ages. So we just skip it and go right into the Reformation period. God used the Reformation in major, major ways to bring the gospel to light after years of darkness, post-Tenebras Lux. There was a recovery of the authority of Scripture, justification by faith, the priesthood of all believers, in theory anyway, uh, and many, many, many other doctrines that we as Protestants now largely take for granted. But not all Reformation theology is gospel, as, as you all know. Leslie Newbigin writes this, this, this conception, Christendom, this corpus Christianitum, Christianum, is the background of all the Reformation theologies. They take it for granted. They're set not in a missionary situation, but in this situation in which Christendom is taken for granted. This means that in their doctrines of the church, they are defining their position over against one another within the context of Christendom. They're not defining the church as over against a pagan world. It's not necessary to point how profoundly this affects the structure of their thinking. End quote. And one of the marks that we largely adopt in terms of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, from the Reformation is the marks of the church, which are, someone help me, preaching, sacraments, discipline. The main, the main three that we pull, uh, preaching and doctrine being the same, pure preaching, pure doctrine, uh, right administration of the sacraments or ordinances, and then discipline. I read somewhere and uh, I could not find where. Maybe uh, Biblio Jack can help us here. I don't see him. Is he here? Biblio Jack. If you don't know Jack, he's the resident wikiophile. Somewhere the Anabaptists added a fourth mark, that of mutual fellowship, uh, which I think is a great mark of the church to add. I mean, think about the abundance of the one another's in the New Testament. Well, th so these are helpful, right? These are helpful marks. They're, I, I would agree with them that a true church needs these marks of the church. Right preaching, right administration of the, uh, the ordinances and, and discipline and mutual fellowship. The problem, though, in thinking about the church in these ways, whether it's these marks or even the more historic marks, apostolic, Catholic, holy, universal, is you, you, we shift our thinking from identity to function. So the church is no longer an identity. It is a place where things happen. It is a place where certain marks are present. And we speak this way today, don't we? We have the preacher, isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Well, you're not in the house of the Lord. I mean, you are the house of the Lord. We say, are you going to church? Where did you go to church? And we, we just speak this way. I'm trying hard, especially with my boys, to, to correct that, you know, and not say we don't go to church. We are going to meet with the New Covenant eschatological community that meets on Riverside Street <laughs> at 1030 a.m. We're not going to church. We are the church. So we've inherited this view of the church's place rather than people. 
So now we fast forward further to post-Christendom or post the post-Christian era, whatever you want to call it in terms of North America. And you just have to turn on the news to see uh, today we're not where we used to be in, in terms of even just uh, remnants of a Judeo-Christian ethic. Christendom is over, or at least it's shattering to pieces all around us. The day of a church culture is done. Daryl Guter of Princeton Seminary notes that while modern missions have led to an expansion of world Christianity, Christianity in North America has moved or been moved away from its position of dominance as it has experienced the loss not only of numbers but of power and influence within society. America is no longer a Christian nation if it ever was one. D.A. Carson writes, a mere quarter of a century ago, if we were dealing with an atheist, he or she was not a generic atheist, but a Christian atheist. That is, the God he or she did not believe in was more or less a God of discernibly Judeo-Christian provenance. The atheist was not particularly denying the existence of Hindu gods, Krishna perhaps, but the God of the Bible. But that meant that the categories were still ours. The domain of discourse was ours. He goes on to say that Oprah shapes more of the nation's grasp of right and wrong than most pulpits of the lands. So we have biblical illiteracy. We have postmodernism. We have pluralism due to the connectedness of the world today. Some have speculated that America is the most diverse nation in the world. David Wells, theologian at Gordon-Conwell, writes that America has become a truly multi-ethnic society and perhaps the most religiously diverse one in the world. The exotic religions from faraway places that once only filled the pages of National Geographic may now be found next door. I mean, if you've ever been in New York City, you just cross the street from block to block and you're basically in a different country. Mosques, landmarks that once seemed confined to the Middle East can now be seen side by side with churches in America. Today's immigration is creating a multi-ethnic society, and this, in turn, has contributed to the extraordinary religious pluralism, which has emerged because many of the new immigrants are at least formally religious, and some of their religions are relatively new to America. Indeed, it would probably be true to say that the context in which Christian faith now finds itself is from an ethnic and religious angle more like the century in which the New Testament was written than, say, the 19th century in America or for that matter, Europe. And that's exciting to me. Missionaries once went overseas to work among peoples from other cultures and religions. Now, some of those people are making their way into Western cities and universities, and some are from places to which missionaries can gain little or no access. European and American missionaries went out into the world. Part of the world is now coming to the missionaries, end quote. I mentioned Leslie Newbig, and he's the first North American prophet who really started sounding the alarm. Uh, very influential, not so much in our circles, but in other circles he is. So much that, that one can speak of the new big gauntlet that has been dropped. He writes that in effect, he has thrown down the gauntlet, challenging the churches of the West to look at our own context as missionary settings and to be as rigorous about what that must mean for our own missionary life as we have been about mission done Elsewhere, I mean, you know the guy has something to say when he's influencing the likes of Tim Keller, Mark Driscoll, Brian McLaren, John Armstrong. I mean, I just saw recently Michael Horton's new book on, well, it's not that new now, a couple years ago called The Great, um, 
the Gospel Commission, I believe. It's on mission, and it's dedicated to Leslie Newbiggin in the beginning. Newbiggin, uh, you probably haven't heard of or don't know a lot about. He was born in England, trained at Cambridge, appointed to be a missionary by the Church of Scotland in South India in the 30s. He returned to England in 1959, where he led the ecumenical movement in various capacities. He was key in founding the World Council of Churches. He's a lot like Karl Barth. He's not really one of us. He's not an evangelical, but he's very critical of liberalism. When he returned from India to England after 20 years, it was a different place. It had changed, yet churches were doing business as usual and becoming increasingly irrelevant. Does that sound familiar to you? So he began calling for a missionary church in North America. His last 20 years proved to be the most lasting influence, and his writings are dated, but he's, he's most influential through his writings. He's written The Open Secret, Foolishness to the Greeks. Uh, probably his most popular work is The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, and then there's books that build off of him. David Bosch's Transforming Mission, uh, Daryl Guder, his edited volumes, uh, The Missional Church, the church between gospel and culture, the gospel and our cultural network are all building off of uh, Newbiggin's gauntlets. And he's arguing that North America is not merely a secular society without God, but it's a pagan society and it's full of idols. And the point is, North America is now a mission field. Our churches have to start functioning with this reality in mind. The Bible records for us the mission of God. This is the documentation of the mission of God. If we asked Dr. Hamilton what that mission was, he would say to bring glory to himself through saving and judging. We're going to look a little more at the mission of God. But it's God's mission. Mission is not the church's first and foremost. It's God's. That's why Luke and Acts again and again says, the Lord added, the Lord added, the Lord added. So the whole Bible is a missional document. As Ralph Winter put it, the Bible is not the basis of missions. Missions is the basis of the Bible. I think all too often we don't do justice to just think about Paul's letters. Paul's a missionary. These are missionary, missionary letters sent to churches to get it all sorted out so they can function better in terms of their own mission. The whole Bible is a missional document. Andreas Kalsenberger and uh, Peter T. O'Brien in their book, uh, salvation to the ends of the earth. It's a biblical theology of mission found in that gray series, New Studies in Biblical Theology, that's edited by Don Carson. Uh, that, whole, that whole series is worth owning if you're a teacher or preacher especially. And this volume's a good one. And they write this, God's saving plan for the whole world forms a grand frame around the entire story of Scripture. His mission is bound up with his salvation, which moves from creation to new creation. End quote. So the fundamental reason I'm arguing that the church, me and others, the church should be missional is because God is missional. God is a missionary God. The Father chooses. He gives them to the Son. The Son redeems. And then the Father, through the Son, sends the Spirit to apply the blessings of the age to come, won by the Son, for His sheep. Then the Son commissions those sheep to gather in the scattered exiles, all in anticipation of the resurrection and indeed the resurrection of the whole world. God is a missionary God. It's not so much that God's church has a mission, but that God's mission has a church. Mission was not made for the church, but the church was made for God's mission. God sends the church because he's already on mission. The church does not simply have a missions department. It should wholly exist to be a mission. The covenant community 
is the instrument of the mission of God. So I want us to look at some themes that we're all familiar with, but with this slant in terms of those things, with this missional slant. So let's think now a little bit about redemptive history. Started with creation. Creation, God had had new creation in mind. Creation's pointing forward. His mission begins here. As Dr. Hamilton pointed out, he creates man and he commissions him to rule, which is a kingly function. Adam is kingly. He's commissioned to work and to keep the garden. And these two verbs, work and keep, in Hebrew, are only used together in one other place in the, in the Hebrew Bible, and it's that of the ministry of the priests, or to work and to keep. I think there's allusions here to see that we should see Adam not only as a kingly figure, but a priestly figure. The guard, he's not merely a farmer. In the, in the garden. He's a king with priestly duties. He's, he's the prototypical king priest called to serve God in, God in the garden temple. Uh, Beale, in the work that Dr. Hamilton mentioned, he writes that the intention seems to be that Adam, and this is the point Dr. Hamilton made, Adam was to widen the boundaries of the garden in ever-increasing circles by extending the border of the garden sanctuary into the inhospitable outer spaces. The outward expansion would include the goal of spreading the glorious presence of God. So Genesis 1.28, with the command to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion can be seen as the first great commission that was repeatedly applied to humanity as history progressed. But of course we know it didn't work out that way, did it? Adam, another Adam is needed. Adam fails. We need a new Adam to fulfill God's mission since the first one failed miserably by seeking to rule himself and be autonomous. The garden temple that they were called to guard and keep and to protect now has to be protected from them. They're booted, and now the garden is protected from them. Although not outside of God's plan, obviously, this is a cosmic tragedy, and it now changes the way God's going to fulfill his mission on earth. Now, rather than following suit, and rather than honoring and giving thanks to the Creator, now all of humanity outside of Christ exchanges the glory of God for created things, Romans 1. Now, a missional ecclesiology exists because worship doesn't, to quote Dr. Piper. So we see this, the commission in creation, and then uh, let's look again at Genesis 12. We've seen a lot of Genesis 12, but in case you were snoozing, let's just look at it again. And I just want to, I want to point out the structure again. Um, well, let's just look at again, again, the agenda here. We saw the structure was command three promises, command three promises, but there was a twofold agenda here. And think in terms of mission, or missional formation, missional vocation of Abraham's family. They were first to be blessed. They were to be the recipient of blessing, as we pointed out. And then look at verse three, the second half. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham's family receives blessing, and then they mediate blessing. That's, that's the agenda here. The mission of God, of course, catapults from here. Abraham and his family are blessed in order to be a blessing. I submit that that doesn't change for the rest of redemptive history. Covenant community is always blessed in order that we should be a blessing. Christopher Wright, in his book I mentioned and commend again the mission of God, he writes this, We cannot speak biblically 
of the doctrine of election without insisting that it was never an end in itself. And isn't that what it often is in our circles? I mean, let's confess here, we just want to debate nuanced points of doctrine. And election just becomes a debating point. It wasn't given to function that way. It was giving to help us know and love God and realize why we love God and that he first loved us. It's comfort. It's also given to help us to persevere. But it's also missiological as much as it is about salvation. Election, blessing, has an end goal. So it's not an end in itself, but it's a means to the greater end of the ingathering of the nations. Election must be seen as missiological, not merely soteriological. Abraham and his family are blessed in order to be mediators of blessing. Another book I want to recommend is by Michael Goheen, and it's called A Light to the Nations. It's much smaller than Christopher Wright's book. If you're interested in following up, this is a good treatment. I think it's called The Church and the Biblical Story or something like that, the subtitle. He makes the same point, though. Abraham's particular election is the instrument for the universal purpose of God with the whole world. Thus, in the biblical story, privilege and responsibility, salvation and service, receiving and mediating blessing, they belong together in election. God's people are a so that people. They're chosen so that they might know God's salvation and then invite all the nations into it. Now, don't mishear me. Election's important, really important. Uh, and, and don't mishear me either. I'm not advocating a Barthian view of election that it's all about vocation, just chosen to serve. It's not just chosen to serve. It's chosen for salvation. Uh, I'm reformed in that way, but it's not an either-or. We don't have to have a false dichotomy here. So election is, is missiological as well. We are a so-that people. So we can look not only at Genesis 128, but Genesis 12 as a small, small great commission. The Abrahamic covenant can be seen as a great commission. The great commission is a Christological mutation of this original commission. Go and be a blessing, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. That the nations of the world will find blessing through the descendants of Abraham is the central missionary motif of the Bible. So Genesis 12 is really important for missions. Again, I mentioned, I about fell out of my chair when the recent conference, the dispensationalist said that Genesis 12 had nothing to do with Rome or nothing to do with PNG. I'm thinking, man, we're reading different stories here. It has everything to do with the nations being blessed. So that's creation. That's Abraham. Then we have, of course, the, the marriage, the giving of the law, the pro- programmatic statement for Israel's vocation comes right before that. So flip to Exodus 19. We've uh, Appealed to it. I haven't really read it, I don't think. We've appealed to it several times the last two days. Israel's fundamental vocation here, 19, 4 to 6. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now, if... Notice there's a strong conditional element. If you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, out of all the peoples, although all the earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. If they will listen... They will be Yahweh's own treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth. This word for treasured possession refers to a personal article 
of movable property with immense value. So kings often have, they own everything, right? Kings would own everything in a country, but they had this special possession, and this is the idea here, if they, they would obey. It's the private treasure of the king, even though the whole country was his. This is his special treasure in which he particularly delighted in. And again, is not this, in many ways, a restatement of Genesis 12. Now, there's obvious discontinuity, but notice the similarity. They're blessed, they've been redeemed, and what's the purpose? Priesthood. As Abraham's offspring, Israel is blessed to be a blessing. They're to be a servant nation. And God is totally committed to his mission of blessing the nations through the agency of Abraham's offspring, or we could say through the agency of Israel. God's committed to it. He's committed to a single plan through Israel for the world, as N.T. Wright likes to put it. His single plan through Israel for the world. Recall the structure of Genesis 12. First, they're blessed in order to be a blessing. Israel was called to be a display people, embodying in its communal life God's original intention and the end goal for what it meant to be a human being. They were to be an attractive sign before all the nations of what God had intended in the beginning and of the goal toward which he was moving, the restoration of all creation, the recreation of the world, human life from the corruption of sin. So she was to be a priesthood, the priesthood in whose congregation was the whole world, the entire globe. Israel was called to be a priestly kingdom serving the world by being separate from it. So her calling was fundamentally missiological. As a priesthood, the nation had the task of bringing the knowledge of God to the nations and bringing to the nations the means of atonement. They were to represent what it looked like to live under the rule of God and fulfill Adam's mandate to expand his presence as his king priests. That's not to say that Israel was called to be involved in cross-cultural evangelism in a centripetal manner. To say that, I think, goes beyond the biblical text, although Walt Kaiser has a whole book arguing that. Israel was to be a light to the nations, witnessing to the saving purposes of God by experiencing them and living according to them in a centripetal manner. They were to draw. Again, as Bill notes, they were to be mediators in spreading the light of God's tabernacling presence to the rest of the dark worlds. And again, of course, we know, again, as the storyline continues, Israel commits adultery to pick up on the marriage language. They commit adultery on the wedding night, don't they? They're taken out of Egypt, but Egypt is not taken out of them. They need a new covenant. They need new hearts. Eventually, God raises up King David and promises him a son who will have an eternal kingdom. This, of course, as we've seen, is in fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. So now the blessing for the many in Genesis 12 will be mediated by the rulership of the one. That is the Davidic king, the Davidic descendant, which we've seen. Psalm 72, 17 picks this up. May his name, speaking of the Davidic king, may his name endure forever as long as the sun shines. May his fame increase. May all nations be blessed by him and call him blessed. So you understand in God's purpose then, it's still blessing for the nations. How does that come about? Nations must submit to the Davidic king who is the offspring of Abraham. You see how God's working out his purpose here. God's mission is coming to fruition. Israel, though, they don't have the heart to obey. They need new hearts, and they soon, after the installment of the monarchy, they're in exile again. They're eventually freed from exile, but as Dr. Hamilton pointed out, 
the promises hadn't yet come to fruition, right? They come back to the land, but man, the glorious vision of Isaiah, Ezekiel, that just wasn't there. God had not returned even though they were in the land. That's why when the temple's rebuilt, the elderly folks cried. You can imagine that. They see the new temple and they weep because they're thinking, this isn't it. This isn't what we're waiting on. So the Old Testament storyline ends with a question mark, not an exclamation point. Bruce Ware is fond of pointing out that it ends with a whimper, not with a bang. Enter Jesus, the last Adam, the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head, the singular seed of Abraham, the Davidic king, the ascended son of man, the suffering servant who embodies Israel and through death, resurrection, and ascension brings blessing to the nations. Note how Acts 3, 25 and 26, note how it alludes to three passages that we've seen several times. It alludes to Genesis 12, and it alludes to 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, and it alludes to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. It says this, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servants and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. So we, we talk a lot about the significance of, uh, of Christ and, and embodying the new covenant, bringing about, fulfilling God's promises. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that in these talks. Fast forward then to the new covenant church. As prophesied, the Lord poured out His Spirit at Pentecost and forms His new covenant community. They're fully forgiven and they're indwelt by the empowering presence of God. They're the called out ones, the ecclesia, commissioned to demonstrate in their living what it means to live under the reign of King Jesus. We're called to represent the reign of God and are therefore a contrast society, an alternate community, resident aliens, as 1 Peter 2 calls us, which is to be simultaneously at home, yet also a foreigner. So the New Covenant community is to be a peculiar people. Another way of saying weird, right? Today, Christians aren't weird enough. I was real encouraged. I launched Brad, one of the brothers from South Carolina, was telling his testimony. And almost in passing, he mentions uh, the reason he was first drawn to New Covenant, uh, the church. He's just talking. He says, yeah, I met this, what was her name? Carla? Carol. Tell Carol she's the hero of the Bunyan Conference. Got a shout out. He said, well, there's a girl named Carol, and she just was different. So I was intrigued and talking to her, and she invited me to church, and I went. Real small, but not small at all. Carol was different, which attracted Brad to whatever, whatever God she believed in. He had questions, and it brought her to the, to the gospel ultimately. So this is what we're called to be, contrast society, different. With the onset of Christendom, obviously the church lost its identity as being distinct, no longer embodying an alternative story, no longer embodying an alternative worldview, but too often imbibing idolatrous and imperial values. Would that this were only a fourth century issue. Church is called to embody the gospel. Now, it's not only centripetal, but centrifugal. But we're going to spend uh, most of our time on that aspect, not so much on the centripetal, drawing, attractive, contrast society, but on the fact that we're actually called to go out and proclaim the gospel. So now I want to spend the rest of our time um, looking at seven images 
that we're all familiar with, but I want to show them in more of a, a missional light. In some ways, this will be a, a biblical theology of the missional church. 